Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. Today I am here with Joe Goldberg. Joe, how are you doing today? Doing well, Mark. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, glad to have you. And today we're going to talk about the CFPB Small Business Lending Rule, which just went into effect. It was just published, Joe said, in the Federal Register. But Joe's been on my, is, is a part of my team. He does other things as well, but he has done a couple of previous podcasts. And Joe has been a lawyer for 40 years. He has taught consumer law uh, until about a year and a half, two years ago. He was at NCUA and was in charge of the consumer compliance arena at NCUA, Fair Lending, Humda, et cetera. And uh, Joe's a tremendous resource for me and my clients. And we've got a couple other great podcasts. And I'm really looking forward to chatting today with you, Joe, about the CFPB's small business lending rule, which again, when did that go in effect? It became final and published in the Federal Register on May 31st of 2023. May 31st. And we are recording this on May 31st. So this is, uh, this is just in time podcasting, I think is what they call it. Very good. All right. So, so uh, what are we? What is it that we want to talk about relative to the small member business lending rule, Joe? Right, well, I want to do something of a high level discussion about it because it's extremely detailed. We don't have the time to go into all the excruciating details, but I'm going to go over a little bit of the background and the purpose of this particular rule, a little bit of an overview of coverage and collection and the reporting requirements the compliance dates because there's a lot of lead time for actually having to comply and collect and report the the data and then also I'll discuss some of the resources available to the credit unions I can tell you that the CFPB has already issued some some highly detailed and, and really easy to use resources that'll help with compliance very good. Very good. So I guess the first place would to start there based on that summary would be the background and the purpose. Right. So the background of this is that in 2010, when the Dodd-Frank Act was passed, the Dodd-Frank Act amended a number of consumer protection laws. And one of those was the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. There were several amendments to that but the one we're focused on is what's referred to as Section 1071. And that's 1071, Section 1071 of the Dodd-Frank Act. And what it did is it required creditors under certain circumstances to collect data about small lend business lending. So loans to small businesses. Uh, some of the data is specified in the, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, but the Congress also imposed a requirement on the CFPB to issue a regulation that essentially includes all the details of what has to be collected, what's subject to 
this particular section of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, who's subject to it, and how it's done. So again, that's 13 years ago, and I can't say that CFPB has been working on it for 13 years, but it really has taken time to come up with this regulation. But let me first talk about the, the purpose of this, and the purpose is actually stated right in the um, Equal Credit Opportunity Act. It says, the purpose of this section is to facilitate enforcement of fair lending laws and enable communities, governmental entities, and creditors to identify business and community development needs and opportunities of women-owned, minority-owned, and small businesses. And then I can tell you that the final rule also includes LGBTQI plus owned small businesses in the coverage as well. Let's well, take the purpose of it. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. All right. All now, right. So, why, now why, why? Yeah, so yeah, that I, I think I I have a question that might be the same question as you. So I think about consumer compliance when I think of CFPB. Um and and I, you know in my mind I've always thought of it as more of a consumer based organization as opposed to business-based. So why is this here in ECOA? Well, I don't know if I can give you the definitive answer, but the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, even before the Dodd-Frank Act, did cover business lending. Uh, the idea was it's an anti-discrimination statute, and it dealt with and still deals with preventing discrimination in all forms of lending. And I'll talk about that a little bit too. Okay, great. That's helpful. Yeah, the basic anti-discrimination provisions do apply to business credit. So that's why it got put there. And I think also CFPB is the agency responsible for writing regulations for the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. So it probably fits in because of that reason as well. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. All right. So as I said, the CFPB was required to promulgate regulations and guidance for this new provision. Uh, and as we discussed, it's, it did it today formally. It actually released the, the final rule a couple months ago, but it takes a while for the Federal Register to get those things published and they become, they become official upon publication. Now, that doesn't mean that they're in effect necessarily, and we'll talk about the effective date and the compliance dates a little later. It was a very long process. There was a lot of study done by CFPB. There was a proposed rule. There was a lot of feedback that was obtained from industry, from fair lending organizations, and that all went into the mix for this final rule. Now, just I did mention the effective date, and just so you're aware, the effective date is 90 days from the date of publication in the Federal Register. So, by my calculation, I believe that's August 29th. Got it. So, end of uh, August, it will become effective. Got it. Right. But again, effectiveness and compliance are two different things, and I'm going to spend a little time on compliance, and I think you'll see why. Okay. It also it issued a number of guidance and other documents to help with this, as I mentioned before. One of them is the Small Entity Compliance Guide. It issued that um, in mid-May, so it actually came out before the, the rule was published in the Federal Register. 
And then there's some other aids that, that help as well. Uh, but I do want to highlight the small entity compliance guide, because even though it says small entity as part of the name, it's something that has uh, the types of information that'll be beneficial to anybody who's lending to small businesses and who might be subject to this rule. So I'm going to talk about the creditors that this rule affects, the transactions that are included under the rule, the data that is to be collected, and as I mentioned, the compliance dates. And also go through what some of the other CFPB resources are. And Mark, I don't know if you'll make that the link to the, the resources available. I can I do that. Yeah. In the show notes, I'll, I'll, I'll make a link to anything that you've provided here. Okay. Now the final rule is over 800 pages long, which sounds fairly daunting, but I can tell you that over 700 of those pages are background and explanatory information. It talks Joe. about Joe, let me interrupt there for one second. So that 700 pages, would that be like the equivalent on the NCUA rules that I'm familiar with? There's the preamble where the NCUA board discusses the whys and the hows and how we got here and the things we've considered. And then there's the actual regulation. So is that similar here? Exactly. That's that's what these 700 pages are. They, they tell you how they ended up where they ended up. Uh, the text, text of the rule is actually roughly 15 pages. And then there's another 80 pages or so of official interpretation and appendices, which are part of the rule, but they're they're separate from the actual text of the rule. They will explain what the text means. So, uh, so if you do go to read the rule, the 15 pages or so at the end of that 800 pages are really what you're focusing on. But the benefit of the other 700 pages is if you have a question about what something means, a lot of times that explanation is in that preamble. Got it. All right. First of all, who is covered by the rule? And when I talk about who, I'm talking about the creditors. So financial providers, it's depository institutions and others, financial services entities that originate I, let me put this in past tense, that originated at least 100 covered originations to small businesses in each of the two preceding calendar years is a covered financial institution. So if you're making these small business loans, and as I said, if you do over, or over 100, or at least 100, it's 100 and over, excuse me, for year one, and then another 100 or more in year two, in year three, you have to report. So let me, and let me just throw this in here because there's all sorts of wrinkles. So I'll talk about this wrinkle. If there are multiple entities involved in the origination of this covered loan or covered credit, only the last financial institution with authority to set the material terms is required to count the origination. So not so every entity has to count that toward the hundred. Got it. So let's pause there. Putting that in in credit union speak, that would be a loan participation or an eligible obligation situation, which would likely the last one would likely be the only one, and that would be the loan originator, the one who uh, originated the loan and then participated it out to five or ten credit unions or 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 what have you. Is, am I, is it, am I on the right? 
Are, are we on the a same page? Absolutely. There? Absolutely. Okay. So if the credit union would use a QSO to handle the transaction, but the credit union has the right to change the fine the terms before it becomes final, then it's the credit union who has to report. But if that authority is handed over to a QSO or someone else and the credit union doesn't have the authority to change those terms, then it would be that other entity who is required to count the transaction toward the 100. Got it. That makes sense. All right. So and let me just say this, as I mentioned, if you do 100 or more in year one, 100 or more in year two, the credit union has to report in year three. However, if in year three, you only do 50, then year four and your year five, you do not have to report because you don't have two preceding years where you've met the threshold 100. Interesting. So you yeah. could roll very, on. Very simple concept. Yeah, you can roll. <laughs> yeah, you can roll on and you can roll off. If you roll off, you got to get two more years to get rolled back on. Exactly. Right. And this is all covered in the small entity compliance guide and some of the other aids. And also you can voluntarily report. And I know this is similar to Humda. In fact, this whole process has a lot of similarities to Humda, but Humda allows for voluntary reporting. And I know sometimes people would you know, question, why would anybody voluntarily report? There's, there's two reasons. Number one, if you have a process in place to collect this information, you're collecting it and you're usually using a system that can electronically automatically send the data to the CFPB. It's easy. You're collecting it and you just do it and you may be required the next year anyway. So that, those, those are, that's a reason why. And the other reason why is some, some entities do feel an obligation to provide this data because it has a beneficial use for credit unions, it has some use for their communities, for their their membership. So they they do that out of sort of a feeling of obligation toward uh, their their goals as a as a financial institution. Right, and and as you're saying that low income designated credit unions or credit unions that participated in the Treasury ESIP program, I know there's a lot of reporting that they have to do tied to that to keep their either their low income designation or keep their CDFI designation or to show that they're meeting the purposes of ESIP and I and that 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 ESIP program with Treasury. So I could see there'd be some advantages where you can have some data to support what it is you're doing to serve the community or the the field of membership. Yep. Very good observation. I hadn't thought about that, but that's that that's exactly right. All right. Next, let's talk about the covered originations. And I use the term originations but you're going to hear me talk a little bit about applications as well. To meet the threshold, you only count originations. However, institutions who are required to report will have to also report information about every application, regardless of whether the application leads to an origination. So an application with nothing more doesn't count towards the threshold, but it must still be the information surrounding it must be reported. All right, so what app, what are covered originations? So they are extensions of business credit as defined in Regulation B. There was already some definition of business credit in Regulation B. 
I'm not going to go into all of the, the qualifications for that, but a few of them are that the credit must be primarily for a business purpose. It does not include an extension, renewal, or amendment of existing credit. Now that, so if a loan term is extended, but there is no new obligation created, it's just the original obligation that has now has a, a different end date. That's not a, a new transaction that's cover or counted in the 100. However, if there is an existing obligation and there are new terms and the creditor has the borrower, they, they terminate the first obligation and, but enter into a new one to replace it. That is a new origination that would be counted. And there are examples of these in the job aids that I'm, I've talked about. There's some other credit that's excluded under Reg B, such as utility credit and a few other types of, of things, but also under the, the new amendment to ECOA, anything reported under HUMDA is not included. So there's not double reporting of those transactions. Um, Interesting. That makes sense. Right. And these are transactions involving a small business. The CFPB has adopted the definition of small business under the Small Business Administration regulations. However, the initial size threshold to be considered, or, or cap, I guess, to be considered a to, to be a small business is not, not more than $5 million gross annual revenue for the preceding fiscal year. An entity that has greater than $5 million in gross annual revenue that preceding year is not considered to be a small business for purposes of this rule. The CFPB will adjust the threshold every five years. There'll be five-year periods where, where it will remain the same. Joe, uh, one thought that you said earlier, it's all applications. So what I think I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, because that's quite possible too, is so you it's the origination of the loan. So the loan is originated, it's funded, and you have the, the thresholds of the 100 for two years. That's what allow, That's what requires you to report. Once you have to report, it's on all applications. So that could be a an application that was submitted and withdrawn. That could be an application that was submitted and denied. Am I thinking about that right? Yes. Yeah, That that's the idea. It's similar to Humda in that it's th those, those types of actions provide data in themselves. Yes. Because you may have some, you know, a, a protected class could, or somebody sure that there could be patterns is, there in the denials or the withdrawals correct right so yeah, yeah you're you're absolutely right oh and it does discuss what an application is an application can either be oral or written but it has to be consistent with the lender's usual practices for extending this type of credit so just just to know, you know, we're not dealing just with anything in writing. It can be done orally, as I said, if it if it meets the requirements of the creditor. And the, the, whatever their normal procedures are is what leads to it being an application. 
All right. right. So just like a, a there's a an oral contract is a contract. It's just harder to prove, right? So an oral exactly. application is an application. Right. Right. Now, generally speaking, there's going to be paper at some point along the line because sure. there's going to be a transfer of funds or an extension of credit, which makes funds available. So it, to some extent, it doesn't make a difference, but it does when there's an application that is not, doesn't, doesn't go to consummation. Yeah. So it's something to keep in mind. All right. The next thing is what is the data that must be collected? The term that's used in the rule is reportable data points. By my count, there are 81 total, which may or not may or may not appear in every transaction, but those are the total that could could occur in the application and origination process. So to some extent, again, there are similarities to Humda. Some of the information is the same that you would be collecting if you were collecting for Humda. But just want to remind you, as I said before, if it's getting reported through the Humda system, it's not going to be reported here. But the very first thing that is listed for a reportable data point is a unique identifier for each application. And that's similar to Humda. And that is something that the creditor creates. There are rules on how it's done, what the length of it is, what it can and cannot say or have within it. It cannot be an EIN or a social security number. The idea is that some of this data is available to the public or to some entities and also to people in the financial institutions. So there are concerns about privacy. So not, not all the information can be shared and also the type of information has to be collected in such a way or some of it so that it, it doesn't personally identify individuals involved. So Joe, uh, as you, as you walk through that, I'm, it, you know, it, it, I'm kind of channeling if I was working out in a credit union and let's say I was at 80 originations this year, or let's say I was at the last two years, I was already at a hundred and I know I'm always going to be going over a hundred. It almost seems like the first thing I'd want to do is figure out these 81 reportable data points. And am I already gathering those, right? Odds are, I probably am only gathering a percentage of them, pick a number, or I'm getting something similar to what's asked and maybe defined slightly different. So the data I'm ga gathering is likely to potentially change. What's your thoughts on that statement? I think you're right. It'll change in the sense that there will be additional data that has to be collected. Now there is a filing instruction guide for this. It's already been issued by CFPB. There is a multi-page chart for each reportable data point with it's, it's in chart form, but it has a whole lot of text in it explaining each one. So it may sound daunting to you, but with the materials and aids that are out there, it's really not going to be that difficult. And there the, already the first... is a system in place for reporting. And like the Humda system, collection can be tied to that system to make it easier for you. Got it. Well, it might be the, the first lift. The, the first lift will probably be a heavy lift, reading through it, understanding it, digesting it. And as clear as CFPB thinks it's kind of like back when we were at NCUA, right? We wrote a regulation, we wrote a preamble. It was perfectly clear to us. 
crystal clear, right? <laughs> then we issued it. Uh, the, the real world kind of tells us it's not quite as clear as we thought from our vantage point. They've probably worked out a lot of those hiccups, but as it gets getting this off the ground, I think there might be some, some uh, I don't want a regulatory burden, but burden just to kind of get it done and get it right. Yeah, absolutely. I think from what I can tell that CFPB has learned a lot of lessons from the HUMDA process uh, and has used what they've learned in creating this process. So some of those hiccups won't occur, but it doesn't matter. You're exactly right. The first day somebody encounters something, they ask a question and then the, the, the regulator who issued the rules says, ah, we didn't think of that. So yeah, there will, there will be some of that. Exactly. Um, hopefully not much, but we'll see. And then I'm not going to go over what the, all of the data points are, but some of the things are pretty common. Name of the applicant, date of application, method of application, type of credit, the credit purpose, amount sought, the action taken, the reason for denial, if there's denial, pricing information, sensing, census tract information, ethnicity, gender information, and a whole lot of other relevant bits of data to the process. Again, this, this is not the time and place to go over all of them, but as I said, there are a lot of resources for you. I mentioned this briefly, there is what is being referred to as a firewall, and that is part of the regulation that has rules about who within a financial institution can access certain types of information collected. Obviously, not everybody in a financial institution has the need to see personal identifying information. There obviously are some that will, and there's no restriction in them having access to it. But the rule wants to make sure that this information is only in the hands of people who actually do need it. You know, the, the, the whole idea is that the information is not going to be used improperly. These rules are pretty specific, but they're pretty easy to follow. And again, they are in the small entity compliance guide. So you'll be able to see those. And anybody who re reports Humda data should be aware that a number of this, the pieces of data are actually made available to the public. So similar to Humda, the financial institution is going to have to make some of this data public. It's not going to identify who it relates to, but there'll be some gross information available so people can see what the lending patterns of the credit union or whichever financial institution is involved is. Record retention is three years from the date that the register with all this data is to be submitted to CFPB. So if the date for reporting is X, three, it's the date it's supposed to be reported, not the, if you actually do. If you report late, that three-year record retention still refers back to the date that the register is to be submitted to CFPB. The reporting is annual. It's on a system that CFPB created. And the, the reporting date is... June 1st of the, the year after the data has, from which the data has been collected. So if you collect data for 2025, the reporting date is June 1 of 2026. 
So so just stop there for one second. So we get to the end of 2023 and I'm a credit union. And this year I had 110 originations. So 2023 was 110 and 2022 was 105. I've hit that threshold to report. So I would report in June of 2024. Correct. Now, in reality, that's not going to be the dates that we're going to use because the with the compliance dates, it's actually pushed out a little bit bit further. But that's okay. the idea. You collect for a calendar year, and then the following June first is the deadline for submitting the data. Got it. Okay. All right. So there is a, as I mentioned, a filing instruction guide, which contains all the details about reporting, about the system that's being used, how to use the system, how to collect the data. There's a lot of help with that. So that's pretty good. All right. Now we're going to talk about probably what's the most confusing part, and that is the compliance dates. So we now have an effective date of August 29th of 2023. However, the compliance date, compliance dates are different than the effective date. And here's what CFPB did. They took into account the burden that this is going to create on financial institutions, including credit unions. So CFPB created three tiers for institutions, covered institutions, for complying with the rule. So tier one is for financial institutions that originated at least 2,500 covered transactions in both 2022 and 2023. So 2,500 or over, you're in tier one. Tier two is 500 originations in 2022 and 2023. And tier three is at least 100 transactions in 2022 and 2023. Now, all right, those are the baselines for determining what tier the, the financial institution is in. Keep in mind that reporting is only required if you meet the threshold of 100 for the two years before you're required to report. Because reporting and and this determining if you're in a tier are two different things. All right, but we have, we have the three tiers, which tells you the threshold to be in each. Now, for reporting, tier one, 2,500 or more transactions, must start collecting for transactions beginning October 1 of 2024. So you count the transactions for 22 and 23 to determine if you're in tier one. And if you are, you only have to start collecting data for transactions beginning October 1 of 2024. And so you have October, November, December, it's three months in 2024 and you report that data on June 1 of 2025. For tier two, that's the 500 threshold, you must start collecting originations beginning April 1 of 2025, and to report the data for all of 2025 from April 1 on by June 1 of 2026. 
And for tier three, this for the smallest number, um, smallest threshold number of 100, you must start collecting transactions beginning January 1st of 2026. And your report, you're going to collect for a whole year and then report by June 1st of 2027. So there's a Got long so, burn-in period for yeah, all the yeah. tiers. That's good. So let me kind of jump in here. So, you know, in my mind, credit unions are likely going to fall into one of two categories. A, they don't do commercial loans or they do commercial loans, small member business loans, and they have less than a, than 100. So they're not even in any of, any of the three tiers. The other likely scenario is that they have over 100, but less than 500. So the, those credit unions that will have to report likely will be in tier three. So they likely won't have to start collecting data till 2026 and reporting in June, 2027. So that is a, if there's a silver lining to this, they've, they've built in a good transition period. Right. I think that the CFPB has learned some lessons over the years. And I think that that's what led to this creation of the three tiers and the long period before reporting is required, because I think they've, they've, they understand the burden that it does impose on, especially on the smaller financial institutions, including small credit unions. But I think you're right. And I know that some of the figures that CFPB considered when they were making the rule showed that the number of credit unions who were going to be subject to it was relatively low, much smaller than banks and non-depository institutions. Obviously there will be you know, some number, but as you said, that the, the, the lion's share of those should be in tier one. It's based on the, the size of the credit unions in the system. Yeah, makes sense. All right. And they, again, the small entity compliance guide has a lot of examples of 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 where an institution falls, whether it's required to report, when it's required to report. So they've taken into account a whole lot of the, the different potential scenarios for that. Because as I said, to me, it's the most confusing part of this rule. But luckily there are these resources out there and you have enough time to start to figure out where you as a, an institution fall. So this is probably a good time to segue into these resources I've talked about. You know, I've mentioned several of them, but let me go through what so far is the entire list of resources that you should consider looking at if you uh, find you fall within the, the rules prescriptions. First one is the final rule itself. As I said, it's not that hard or not that long in terms of the actual rule and the official interpretation. But as I also mentioned, if you do have a question about the meaning of something, a lot of times it will be somewhere in that 700 pages. Now you may say, wait a minute, I still have to go through 700 pages to find this? You do, but CFPB has issued a table of contents for the final rule. It's many pages long. They've broken it down into as many potential pieces as possible. So you don't have to scroll through all 700 pages to find what you might be interested in. You have a table of contents that will pretty much point the way where you need to go within that rule. So that's, that, that is a huge help. 
to anybody who needs to, to start figuring out some of the details of the rule. I mentioned the small entity compliance guide, and I'll say it again, just because it says small entity doesn't mean if you're big, you shouldn't look at it because it really does a good job of explaining a lot of the things I've talked about. There's an executive summary. Uh, that's always helpful if you need to you know, talk to management about things, explain the rule. There's a good succinct description of the rule and what's required in there. There is a separate document with key dates. That's for compliance and reporting. There is a data points chart. As I mentioned, it goes through every single one of the potential reportable data points, explains them. There is a sample data collection form and you can use it. It will be helpful to you because it has all the data points laid out and it's the type of thing that you can adopt uh, if you're going to be subject to the rule to help you figure out what you need to collect and make sure you have it all. And then there is, as I mentioned, the filing instruction guide. Uh, if anybody deals with Humda, you'll know that there's been filing instruction guides issued annually for Humda for a whole lot of years now. Uh, this is the same thing. And I'm sure that there'll be, anytime there's changes, there'll be a new one issued for a, a new year. Now, where do you find all these? Mark is going to attach the link or make the link available to you, but I can tell you if you have some familiarity with CFPB's website, which is consumerfinance.gov, consumer finance, all one word. Near the top, you go to compliance, then you go to compliance resources, and you'll see an entry for small business lending collection and reporting requirements. If you click on that, all these resources I just mentioned and a whole lot more are right there. So they're all in one place, but once you once you find, figure it out on your own or through what Mark's going to provide for you, it's all right there. Um, and with that, that's, that's all I really uh, want to go through. There's a, a way too much detail for this to be comprehensive, but I think it gives you the flavor of what you're going to have to deal with. And I really do want to emphasize that I don't think it's going to be as daunting as it may sound. You know, I worked at NCUA for a number of years and, and had a lot of contact with credit unions and to deal, and, and the trades, to deal with CFPB regulations. And I know the kind of frustration that credit unions have with some of those, but I have a feeling that with what they've done with this, this one should be a whole lot less stressful for the compliance officials in the credit unions. Now, Joe, I, I think you're right. I think they have a lot of information there that you pointed about too, and we'll have that in the show notes. I, I, I'll repeat kind of what I said earlier. My big takeaway is those data collection points and hearing that they have a sample data collection form. If I was out working at a credit union in member business lending right now, I would be jumping right to that sample data collection form. And I may put a separate link just to that one because it has a particular interest to me. I might actually, it might be, I think what I'll do, Joe, is I'll take a look at that one and 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 maybe we can do a short follow-up down the road as once we know a little bit more about about how this is going to all play out. But this is a fabulous introduction to it. And Joe, I want to thank you for your time today, sharing this wisdom with my listeners. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to do it. You got it. Thanks, Joe. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening. Hope you'll listen again soon. And this is Mark Treichel. 
Signing off with flying colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 